0: Uh, We begin in verse twenty-four of Colossians chapter one. I guess I gotta there we go. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Uh, J. Oswald Chambers once told the story of an Indian believer who walked barefoot from village to village preaching the gospel in, in a rural part of India. His hardships were many. Uh, he, he had one day spent just many miles on the road. He was very discouraged. He had come to a, a certain village hoping to be able to share the gospel. But in that place, he was driven out. He was rejected. He was beaten. At the edge of the village, as he was, as he was leaving, he lay down under a tree, and he, just, he went to sleep, exhausted. When he woke up, there were all these people hovering around him. The whole town was, was just standing around him. In fact, they, they told him that they had come to hear him speak. And the headman of the village explained that, that they had come to look at him while he was sleeping. They had come to, I guess, make fun of him, maybe to heap more abuse on him. But as they looked and they saw his blistered feet, they concluded that he must be a holy man, that they had been wrong that it had been evil of them to reject him. And they were sorry, and they wanted to hear the message that he was willing to suffer so much to bring them. Uh, In March of 2003, the United States and other nations were gearing up for the second Gulf War, and many of the missionaries who were in Jordan evacuated uh, at that time. They they left not knowing what would happen, because the first Gulf War, things had been a little bit uh, difficult. And and yet though some left, many of us did stay. Angie and I and our families had, were, were among those who stayed. And I remember one day as I was, as I was walking, uh, somebody came up to me. And this person was really surprised to see me because uh, she knew that, that most of the people or many of the, the, the missionaries had left. And, and so she was astonished. She said, you're still here. I thought you would have left. And um, I explained to her that you know Jordan was our home now and that um, so many of the people that we work with and that we love, there's nowhere that they can go, and, and we want it to be with them uh, during what was an uncertain time. And as she spoke to me, and, and her husband was there as well, our willingness to sacrifice, to even be willing to suffer, communicated incredible love and commitment to these people. And it communicated it louder than any words we could have said. But it was those actions, that willingness, that willingness, uh, to do that, that, that communicated Christ's love to them. You know, as we, as we come to the book of Colossians and really just these few verses that I want us to take a few moments to consider, um, Paul, earlier in the chapter, he, he's talking about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. He's, he's making the point that, that this Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who is preeminent, He is the one who is over all things. They were created by Him. He is the the one who, who through his death uh, brought peace between us and God. His shed blood bringing reconciliation. And he's made it very clear that Jesus is supreme and that Jesus is sufficient. And as he goes on later in the book, he's going to talk about how there, there are these false teachers. There are, there are people that want to add things on uh, to the gospel and want to suggest that, that there's something else that's needed. But this first chapter especially just focuses so much on how amazing Christ is and how he is really all that we need. And so when we come to verse 24, where we started um, today, it it sounds a little bit strange to read these words. I mean, what does Paul mean? That, That he might fill up what was lacking in Christ's suffering. What could possibly be missing in what Jesus did? Is it true that there's something more that is needed than what Jesus has done for us? That doesn't make sense. I mean, Paul has just spent the, the first part of this chapter telling us that Jesus is supreme, that he is this, this incredible, incomparable Savior. Nothing could be added to the cross, and, and that is complete. So, what could he possibly mean? And what I'd like to do is start at verse 25 and kind of go through to verse 29 and then come back, because I think these verses will help us to understand what it is that Paul means when he says that he's helping to fill up what was lacking in Christ's suffering. So the first thing that I want us to see in in verses 25 and following is that Paul was called to be a servant of the gospel. Paul says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me. You know, Paul was was called to be a minister of the gospel when he was on the road to Damascus. And if you've read the book of Acts, if you know much about Paul's story, you you remember that he was going to persecute the church. He had already been doing that in Jerusalem, and he had letters in hand. He was ready to go and do it some more in Damascus. And so as he was on his way, something happened. He encountered the risen Christ, and and his life was was changed. Uh, According to Paul's words in, in Acts, it says, Jesus spoke to him and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God sent that vision to Paul. He, he, Jesus appeared to Paul on that Damascus road uh, and called him to serve, called him to become a witness of the gospel, to, called him to, to lay aside that sword, lay aside that persecution, that, that, that desire to, to exterminate the church. And actually, he commissioned him to be the one who would take the church and expand it who would take it to the the neighborhoods and the villages and the the places where it had never gone before. And throughout the book of Acts, we see Paul fulfilling that commission, fulfilling that calling to be a servant of the gospel, going from place to place, experiencing challenges and suffering for the cause of Christ. Angie and I received a call from God to become servants of the gospel as well. Uh, For Angie, it really came when she was... uh, a student at the University of Illinois, but she was doing a summer project out at UCLA. For me, it came as a student of the, at U of I as well, a little bit later than that. But both of us felt that God was asking us to go somewhere and do something to serve him. And I think it was that common calling that helped us to realize that God was also calling us to be married. And so we made that commitment that we were willing to go anywhere and do anything that Jesus would ask of us, whatever that might mean. Um, And shortly after we affirmed that calling, in fact, God did ask us to go. But it took us 10 years from the the time we first sensed God calling to when we actually made it overseas. As Angie finished her medical uh, degree, as, as she went through her residency training, and as I got my master's at Trinity. But God's call for us was to serve, even as Paul was called by God to serve. And in that calling, there's really, it's a two-fold calling to Paul, and I think it is for us as well. In the first place, uh, Paul was called to present the full gospel. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And so, Paul was called to present the gospel in its fullness, to present the whole thing, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So first and foremost, Paul was called to to be a witness to the gospel. This message that that the Colossians had heard, Epaphras Epaphras had brought it to them, and he had shared with them, and they had believed it. And Paul himself was one who was, was proclaiming it in various places and situations. It was a message from God himself. Paul didn't add human wisdom to it. It was the full word of God that he preached. And he he didn't hold back. He presented it without compromise. You know, Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews writes that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, but not the realities themselves. And when we think about the Old Testament, we realize that there are hints of what God's doing all along, and yet there's this mystery. It's not fully uh, put out there. Men like Joseph and David, we know, are, are types of the Messiah, types of Christ. They, they, their lives pointed to the elements of what the Messiah would be. Um, in Genesis 3.15, there was this promise that an offspring of Eve would crush Satan. But, but it's not explained much more than that. Isaiah 9, we read about this wonderful counselor, this everlasting father, this prince of Peace, this mighty God who's going to come. But there's no more details. Uh, Isaiah 53, we, we read about this Messiah, this suffering servant, and how he would be pierced for our transgressions. But we don't understand exactly what that means. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord declares that, "I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people." And there's this idea that something different coming but it doesn't flesh out what that really means. And so there's all these shadows in the Old Testament, all these things that are pointing to something new that's coming, something better, something more immediate. But this mystery, while hinted at, is never fully disclosed. But, and Paul says it's this mystery that was kept hidden for ages and generations, and now, now Jesus has come, and it's disclosed to the saints Now it is revealed, and now we can look, and we can see what all these shadows were pointing to. We see the reality that they were driving at. We see that that through Jesus Christ, when we believe in him, he takes up residence by his spirit in our hearts, in our lives. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope that there's something more than what this world, this life, has to offer. That God has chosen to turn aside his wrath. He's chosen to bring forgiveness to us. He's chosen through Jesus to transform us into his image, into Christ's image. And Christ dwells in us through his Holy Spirit, this deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Just before I was uh, before I returned to, to the United States, I was sitting with an Iraqi Shiite man who has come to know Jesus. And we were studying the Bible together, and um, I mentioned in Sunday school that this particular lesson, we were talking about the Trinity, which is not always an easy topic to be talking about with a Muslim because it's not something they believe in. It's not something they accept. And as we were talking about this concept of the Trinity, the, the, God as Father and God as, as the Son, were, were, he could accept those things. He understood those things. That, God had worked in his heart to a place where that was okay. He could, he could put his mind around that. But he was having a really hard time with what is the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit a force? Is it a power? What is the Holy Spirit? And I tried to emphasize that that the Holy Spirit is God's presence in us. It's God's presence everywhere. But I realized in my Arabic, which is, is pretty good, but still not perfect, trying to communicate this concept of the Spirit of God was not an easy one for somebody who didn't have it. But I said, look, you know, you go outside and you, and you feel this air in your face. What, what is that? The wind. Where does it come from? I have no idea. Where does it go? Don't know. But you know when it hits you in the face. And I said, it's something like that with the Holy Spirit. You can't put your finger on it. You can't point to it. You can't see him. But you know when he's there. And it's God's presence in you transforming you. It's the way God manifests his presence in many places around the world. And, it's, and I encouraged him. I said, and it's the presence of God in us through the Holy Spirit that though I'll be thousands of miles from where you are, I can be praying for you and you can be praying for me, and it'll be as though we were right there together. Christ in us, this hope of glory, his spirit guaranteeing the inheritance that we have, I don't know about you, but that excites me. That thrills my my heart and my soul, because I know who I am apart from Christ. I know what my life was like without him. I've seen what life can be like when we choose to do things our own way. And the hope that I have because of Christ in me is something that I get very excited about. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, that is moving us on that we might receive the salvation of of our souls, It's a point in time, but it's also a process that will continue until Jesus returns or calls us home. And so though this is a difficult concept, my friend, I think, finally got it. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that has to open our eyes to even understand what the Holy Spirit is. It's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to truth and pricks our conscience and, and tells us when we've done wrong. It's Christ in us, this hope of glory. You know, Islam teaches that if you do enough works, somehow you can store up enough good so that on the day of judgment, when they weigh your good and your bad, your good will outweigh the bad and you'll be able to get into heaven. But the reality is is that no matter how much good you've done, you can never know you've done enough for sure. And so Muslims live with this nagging doubt that they can ever be good enough for God. They never know. In fact, if they're honest, they'll tell you they don't even know if Muhammad made it to heaven or not. Because they just don't know what the standard is. And God is different in Islam because even if you've done enough good, even if your good outweighs your bad, but maybe God doesn't like the shirt you're wearing that day, or maybe he doesn't think that you're from the right place, he can still say, I don't want you. There's no concept of a of a loving God, a forgiving God. And so this is our message. This is what we are seeking to reach out and to share, that no matter how hard we try, we can never be good enough for God. But it's what Jesus has done. It's Christ in us that brings us the hope that when all is said and done, when the day of judgment comes, we will be able to stand, not because of our merit, but because of Jesus. That through faith, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and he's making us new to be more like Jesus. So that's that first commission that Paul received, and I believe it's the first commission God has given us, and I think it's what God has called you to be as well, and that is to be witnesses of the full message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the second one, Paul was called to present believers to Christ, to present believers perfect in Christ. So it wasn't enough just to share the gospel, but he then had that second calling to disciple he says, "We proclaim Him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all His energy, which is so powerfully works in me. This is also a part of our ministry in Jordan. It's not enough to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, though that is a great thing, but we want to see them grow and mature in their faith, so that, in a sense, we can present them perfect in Christ so that we can present them mature and Christ-like on the day when they're called home. And as they grow and as they learn and as they are transformed, then they can be sharing the good news of Jesus with others. You know, Paul knew that it wasn't enough that we believe certain truths. We needed to be transformed by them. The gospel is not just what Jesus does for us. It's also what he does in us. We have Christ in us that is the hope of glory. And when Christ is in us, he wants to transform us so that we will be different. Paul has already said in chapter one, if we had read the whole chapter back in verse 10, that we need to live lives worthy of the Lord. We need to live lives worthy of the gospel. There isn't, you know, sometimes Muslims will say to us, this concept of grace is so foreign to them. And they'll say, well, you Christians, you know, because Jesus has forgiven you, now you can go and you can do whatever you want. You can get drunk, you can sleep with whoever you want, you can lie, you can cheat, you can whatever. Because, oh, well, I've been forgiven all my future sins. And I say, any Christian who does that does not have Christ in him. He doesn't understand what being a follower of Jesus is really all about. Because when Jesus is in us, we don't want to do those things because we're being transformed into the image of Jesus. And our hearts increasingly want to be like Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't sin. But it does mean that it isn't something that we say, okay, now that I'm a Christian, I can live the way I want to. What it says is I can live the way I want to, but the way I want to is to be like Jesus. And we have that freedom because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so like Paul, when when he would see people come to faith, he would then teach them and he would admonish them and he would encourage them that they needed to learn the truths of God's word and that they needed to live according to them. That's what we do. We take these men and these women and we seek to admonish and teach and exhort and encourage and point them to Christ that they would grow up and become mature. We don't just have them believe and then walk away, but we, we seek to walk with them in this newness of life that they might experience the transforming power of Jesus we come full circle because Paul started out and we skipped over verse 24, but I want to come back to it because um, Paul labors that they might hear the gospel. He he labors and toils that they might be made perfect in Christ. But then the reality is, is Paul was called to suffer for the gospel. Verse 24. "Um, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, I want to say, first of all, that I believe Paul affirms that Christ's work was sufficient. Paul is not saying that something is missing and he's adding to what Christ did. And if we had time and we could go back and we could look at all of chapter 1, we would learn, again, that it is absolutely certain that, that Christ has, what he has done has qualified anyone who believes in him to share in, in the inheritance that is ours as saints in the kingdom of light. We see that we have been redeemed. We see that we have been forgiven. We see that we have been reconciled. There is nothing lacking in that. We see that Jesus is supreme. We see that he is sufficient. Paul knew that what Jesus did was plenty. It was all that we need. There's nothing to be added to it. So when he's saying that he fills up in his flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings, he must mean something else. And I think what he means is that Paul's suffering was connected to Christ's suffering. The two were connected to one another. When Paul met Jesus on that Damascus road, he learned two important things about God's plan for him. One was that, well, let's read it. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a flash of light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When Paul was persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Christians. Christ. So there's the sufferings that we go through as believers are connected to Jesus. The second thing that Paul learned is this, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Paul realized and he learned through Ananias that he would suffer for Jesus. That the suffering that believers have is connected to Christ. And so Paul was persecuting Jesus, not just these people, but also that Paul was going to suffer himself. And Jesus himself said, Remember the words I spoke to you no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, I think sometimes we take solace in the fact that we live in the United States or we live in some nice Western country. And this applies to those missionaries who go to Jordan. This applies to those folks that are over in China, maybe in India. But thankfully, we don't have to worry about suffering. But if we're honest, many of you know what it is to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Many of you know what it's like to be discriminated against or made fun of or thought less of because you chose to follow Jesus. We will suffer if we're going to follow Christ. At some point, it sometimes comes from our family. They hurl those insults in our face. (laughs) You call yourself a Christian and then you do that? Sometimes it comes from our coworkers. I know what you're really like. Sometimes it comes from people we hardly even know. Paul was called to suffer, and his suffering was connected to Christ's. And the reality is is as long as there are believers in Jesus Christ on this earth until Jesus comes back, we will suffer. And in that sense, the suffering of Jesus isn't yet complete. Not because he needs to die on the cross again, but because we will suffer for him, and thus he is suffering until he returns. And so as we serve and as we are willing to give up everything that he might ask us to give up, then we are joining with Paul in, in fulfilling this calling that God has made. You know, I believe this morning that you have these same two callings in your life, that God has called you to be a witness for the good news of Jesus Christ, to to share the gospel in its fullness, and then to take those who come to faith and to help them to grow in that. Now, you may not have been walking or driving on the road from Chillicothe to Peoria and saw a blinding light and, and God told you this, but if you've read Matthew 28, you've seen the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and the promise that he will be with us. And that command is to us every bit as much as it was to Paul. It's, it's my calling in life. It's what God has asked me to leave North America and go to Jordan to do. And so as we finish this this morning, my question to you is, what are you doing to fulfill the calling that God has put in your life? What are you doing where you are to reach out and to to be a witness for Jesus Christ? Are you thinking intentionally about stories you can tell, about questions you can ask, about things you can share? I, I often share with taxi drivers and English students and people that I meet what I've read in the Bible that morning. Sometimes I ask them what they think about it. can be a very interesting conversation. Right before I left to come back to uh, the States, I had breakfast with a young man named Luke who goes to an American university in uh, North Carolina. He was in the youth group, and I actually taught Bible at at a high school, and he was one of my students for a while. And, And as we were talking, I asked him to share with me what he, how things were going spiritually for him. And he said, you know, he just finished his second year. I hadn't seen him for two years. He said, you know, during my sophomore year, we decided in our campus ministry that we weren't going to do big events and have people come and through the big events tell them about Jesus. We decided we were going to join clubs. Go be a part of those clubs and build relationships with people and share Christ. I said, well, that's, that's a great idea. What club did you join? Luke said, well, I went on the, on the, the day where they had all the, the booze out, and the only one that nobody was going to was the pagan club. So I joined the pagan club. He said, it was amazing to sit there and to listen. They would bring in these, these pagans from all around, uh, the, I, I don't even remember what city it was, but town, and they would share these things. And he said, Rick, these are people that are just, they're searching. They didn't really know that they believed this or didn't believe this, but they were pretty sure they didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And he said, I got to be their friend. I got to learn what they thought, think. I got to share with them what I believe. And at the end of the, the year, I said to them, because they'd had all these different people come in, I said, do you think I could share? And they said, sure. He'd earned their, their trust. And he, said, and he said, Rick, you know, when we were done with our meeting, guess who was the next group that came in? Well, it was a, a famous Christian group. And he said, you should have seen the looks they gave us, the, the hatred in their eyes. And there was another one down the hall, and they would just stand there, and they would sh- stare at us as we went in and out. No love of Jesus coming from those, those faces. And he said, and, and I, they knew I was a believer, and, I st- and they didn't even love me with their faces. But he said when he, when he gathered them and he shared, he started out with the stereotypes, all the things that, that he knew they believed that weren't true about Christianity, and all these different things, and he unpacked it. And then he said, now, after I've shared all this stuff, you're probably wondering, why am I a Christian? And they're like, yeah, we are. But through his involvement in the pagan club, there was one guy in particular that was involved in Satanism who had come to him because he didn't know where else to turn, and he asked Luke for help. And Luke shared with him from the Bible and invited him to study the Bible. And the first day they got together to study, five guys showed up. All five have come to know the Lord. But it was because he was willing to think outside the box, to go to a place where these folks were, to love them and to share Christ. He was a bold witness. He didn't hold anything back. And now he's in the process of building into them and discipling them that they might grow in their faith. Luke sacrificed for Jesus. And he suffered, not at the hands of the pagans. He suffered a little bit at the hands of the Christians. And sometimes that's where it comes from. But what is God asking you to do this morning in your context? Maybe he's not asking you to join a pagan club. But maybe he's asking you to think beyond yourself to find a way to build that common ground, to build that that bridge into somebody else's community so that you can be the one who witnesses Jesus to them. Maybe he's asking you to come to Jordan and join with us. We would love to have you. Whatever it is, I encourage you, uh, don't don't think you count the cost and it's what you give up to follow Jesus. Think of it a different way. Think of what you lose and what it costs if you choose to follow anything other than Jesus because that's the real expense to not follow Jesus. Let's pray.